Hi, my name is Edwin Sumter, and welcome to the second episode of Everyday Ed. I've got to start off by saying thank you all so much for the wonderful words and the kind, inspiring things you said about our first show. It meant a lot to us. We're striving here at Everyday Ed to do our best and to make a podcast we can be proud of and one that you're happy to listen to. And I think we're on our way. And being on our way means we're getting better with every episode. If you're a first-time listener, here's a quick recap on how the show is done. We'll spend a few minutes with me doing this opening monologue, if you will, minus the jokes. Then we'll have 20 minutes with our first guest. Then we'll have 10 minutes with my brilliant nephew, Mateo, who'll give us some of his observations and insights. Nothing like hearing from the mind of a 14-year-old. We'll then have another guest for 20 minutes, and then I'll wrap up the show with about a seven-minute commentary. And by the way, if you didn't hear this when I first mentioned it on the first show, I want everyone to know that this show is really a great reason to be proud of because it's not just hosted by me, Uncle Eddie, if you will. It's also put together with the assistance of my two nephews, including Gregory Green, who handles all the technical, all the audio, all the engineering aspects of the show at his own studio called Scale Stone. And then there's Mateo, my 14-year-old nephew, who has a 10-minute spot on the show every episode. So it really is a family affair, one that I can be proud of, and you can too. Regarding the content on the show, I really hope to keep the program down the middle, because I want people to know that everyone's valued, everyone's opinions are valued, and no one will be turned away by any comments or anything they have to say about the show. I created this podcast because I would like to see a certain endgame. And what's that endgame mean to me? It means that when we all start to recognize and move forward to the fact that we all want the same thing. We're all going to have to deal with the fact that in the end, we're going to have to come together in most likely a gray area, an area where everybody's going to have to give a little, but get a whole lot more. And that's what's going to make it so great. We're all going to figure out a way to live together, and not just here in the United States, but everywhere on this tiny blue planet we call Earth. This is a universal thing. And remember these words, the universe truly conspires to help those who help themselves. Now on to the show. This week, we're joined by two great guests. Joining us on this episode of Everyday Ed, I'm honored to have nationally recognized police community relations expert, Dr. Lorenzo Boyd. Dr. Boyd joins Everyday Ed from his office at the University of New Haven. Dr. Boyd spent 15 years in the Sheriff's Department in Massachusetts. He has appeared on CNN, Fox News, The 11th Hour with Brian Williams on NBC. He'll discuss the recent impact of national events around the police and related incidents and how we, those who the police must serve and protect, can move forward with law enforcement. The word reform was much ballyhooed in 2020. Where does that word stand today? How are we forging ahead with a new relationship between police and the people they serve? Dr. Boyd will give us his insights. Also joining us from Marblehead, Massachusetts, a great friend of mine, and this will be a little change of pace. His name is Peter Easterlin. Peter will join us from his studio, Coastal Gung Fu and Boxing School in Marblehead. Peter has been a martial artist for 50 years. He even has studied beside a disciple of Bruce Lee. He'll discuss Bruce Lee and his impact on the martial arts world, and also Bruce Lee's style, Jeet Kune Do, which Peter has become an expert at. With over 50 years, Peter will also talk about, as we all have grown older, what he gets from martial arts now, 
How has he gotten older? He still is as lethal as he's ever been, I'm sure, but he also gets something outside of martial arts. We'll have a great conversation talking about martial arts, Bruce Lee, and the incredible life that Peter List Easterland has had right there in Marblehead, Massachusetts. He also has a great Facebook site and some other things online you'll be happy to hear about so you can watch him in action. And of course, my 14-year-old brilliant nephew Mateo will stop by and tell us what's on his mind. He did such a great job last week when he went over conceptualization and the lack thereof of how we human beings do it. Well, he promised me this week he's got a fantastic story, one that I won't forget, and neither will you. So we'll be right back with our first guest from New Haven, Connecticut. That's going to be Dr. Lorenzo Boyd as we discuss police-community relations. All that and a lot more on this, the second episode of Everyday Ed. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Everyday Ed. Our first guest is Dr. Lorenzo M. Boyd, a nationally recognized expert in police community relations and an authority on urban policing. Dr. Boyd currently serves as the Vice President for Diversity and Inclusion and is the former director of the Center for Advanced Policing at the University of New Haven. He spent 14 years as a deputy sheriff in Boston and this informs his 20 year career in higher education. Dr. Boyd has been seen on the 11th hour with Brian Williams, CNN, Fox News, He's written a book on Massachusetts criminal justice system, currently writing a book on introduction to policing, and he's coming to us live from his home in New Haven, Connecticut. Lorenzo, welcome to Everyday Ed. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. A pleasure to have you on the show, my friend. And when I say my friend, that is no small thing to say because you and I have known each other for decades. And Lorenzo, on behalf of everybody in the old neighborhood, Boy, are we proud of you and all you've accomplished. <laughs> Thank you. What, just watch me. Eventually, I'm going to be somebody. Yeah, you're gonna, eventually you're <laughs> going to be somebody. And with an opening resume like I just read, I'm afraid I got some news for you, my friend. You're already somebody. Well done. Neighborhood Kid does very well. We're Thank all very you. proud of you. Lorenzo, obviously, the timing couldn't be better to have you on the show. We're just finishing up in 2020. And while there's been a lot of talk about police community relations in the past, it all came to a head last year with everything that happened last year in the United States of America. But let's start here. What is police community? What is it about the police community relations? Are we doing it well? Do we need to do better? Where are we failing? What are your thoughts on police community relations? Well, in short, I think most police departments believe that they want to do the right thing, but most police departments don't know how to, because we've been training police for the same the same way for 110 years. We haven't done much difference in training. You know, there's more technology, obviously, but the us versus them scenario keeps moving forward. So when you ask what is community policing, it's actually engaging the community in proactive ways to help them keep their community safe. Because for so long, we do policing to the community. Now it's time to do policing with the community. Well, that's a fantastic answer. And it leads me to asking this. The key word here that I think is paramount to police community relations is the word trust. Mm -hmm. How do we bridge the gap where not only does the community, and might I stop here and say, 
when I say the community, I think we ought to maybe sort of get exactly what we mean when we say that. Do we mean communities of color? Do we mean all communities in the United States of America? Or is it just that the relationship between the police and communities of color, that's the one we're really emphasizing. And if so, how do we bridge that gap in, sense, in the sense of the word trust? Ultimately, we are talking about uh, black and brown communities. Yes, sir. Uh, more so than uh, than any other community. But to talk about trust, so let's take a step back six years. Uh, 2014, President Obama put a group of people together to come up with the task force on 21st century policing. Mm -hmm. So I was part of the original group. It went through uh, multiple iterations wow. and the final report came out in May of 2015. And the final report on 21st century policing has six pillars that drives policing into the future. Pillar number one is building trust and legitimacy. Mm. That's where we need to start. And, and if I may just give you a little bit of that, pillar number one says that building trust and legitimacy is the foundational principle underlying the inquiry between police and the communities that they serve. But here's, here's, here's the B clause that means so much. People are more likely to obey the law when they think that people that are enforcing the law have the legitimate authority to do so. The public confers legitimacy only on those that they believe are acting in, and I quote, procedurally just ways, end quote. So how you treat the community will determine whether or not uh, they're going to buy into it. And I reject the notion that it's the job of the community to fix the relationship with the police, because to me, that's like asking a battered woman to build the relationship with her battering spouse. It needs to start with the police because they have the power, they have the authority, but we need to reimagine policing from the very beginning. But since we're talking about colors of the community of the black and brown communities, there's also viscerally how it looks. And I'll give you an example. I was in Grove Hall in Roxbury not too long ago. And it was a beautiful day. And there were tons of black and brown people out on the street shopping and walking around. And suddenly a car pulled up to stop a gentleman and five white officers got out. It looked as bad as it felt. I'm not sure what circumstances were but there was something about the neighborhood, almost, I'm not gonna use the word, I felt under siege, but it was one of those things where, wow, it's just amazing how that looked to everybody who was standing around there. When does, and how do we look at the issue of policing our own, seeing more officers of color out there on the street who maybe have the sensibilities or the sympathy or the understanding. This is not to say that the police do not have a job where they have to uh, follow the law and protect and serve and so forth. Nobody doesn't want that to stop. But at the same time, it seems like that's being done as well as the piling on of feeling that you're sort of outnumbered even in your own community if you know where I'm going with that, I hope that does make sense what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah, that, but increasing the number of minority officers is definitely something that we need. But 
That's only part of the problem because putting good officers into a bad system just exacerbates the problem. The point that I make is that the system of policing is problematic, the way we view people. So now we can look at the ecology of crime and there are some truths that we hold self-evident. Young people commit more crime than old people. Males commit more crimes than females. And we also know that crime is a function of population density. So big cities are gonna have more crime than rural areas. So if you put those things together, then we do some code switching. So we have young male and urban, mm. and urban has all of a sudden been coded as being black. Sure. So now young urban male and black is seen as a symbolic assailant. And that's problematic because that's how policing is trained. So let me take a step back because I do between 200 and 250 and 300 hours training police officers all over the country. I'm in police academies every single week. So they don't say necessarily, at least not in my presence, go look for black people. That's not what they say. But we do understand when they talk about levels of crime, when they talk about calls for service, then they add value to communities or strip value from communities. And they won't say, look at the black people, but they will say area B2 and area B3 have higher rights of crime. (laughs) So they're going to address it differently. And then when we have the war on whether it's the war on drugs, war on crime, it disproportionately affects people of color. And that's problematic. Lorenzo, you've had a unique perspective when it comes to law enforcement. 14 years in the deputy sheriff's office in Boston. And now of course, your post active career as a police officer in higher education and working with community policing. So you've been sort of inside and outside, looking in, looking out, but you've gotten a great perspective since the, problem, as you mentioned, isn't necessarily more police of color, but it's something that's systematically ingrained within the system. What, in your opinion, has been the reluctance? What has stopped the changes from within the system when it comes to police community relations? One, I don't think people see it as a problem. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the first thing. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people in power that don't see it as a problem. So let's take a step back because the problem that we're dealing with is not just Grove Hall in 2020, and it's not just Ruggles in 2019. It goes back because the convenient history is we say that Sir Robert Peel in England in 1828 is the father of modern policing. What we don't say is we've had established policing way before that. The first time we see something that looks like real law enforcement, 1704 in South Carolina with slave patrols. Yes. White men on horses would ride around looking for black people, not knowing whether or not they were free or or enslaved. And they would snatch them up, they would beat them, and then they would sell them back into slavery. And that kept continuing. That went through the uh, Jim Crow laws. It went through the Black Codes. It went through the KKK. Uh, going through policing and taking part in policing in many Southern states. Then the uh, civil rights struggle where black and brown people were arrested just for trying to get the right to vote, just for peacefully protesting. You move forward to uh, zero tolerance, the war on drugs, which disproportionately affected black and brown communities, the stop and frisk racial profiling. At every point in America's history, there's been a negative relationship between the police and people of color. So here's what we do. We need to acknowledge that negative history, first of all. 
it's not enough just to say it happened, let's move on. There's no healing until there's an acknowledgement that there was a problem. Once we can acknowledge the negative history, that's why black and brown people have such a hard time because the civil rights struggle up yeah. until the Voting Rights Act of 1965, a lot of people were alive in 1965 that remember the stuff that happened. And if they weren't alive, their parents were. So there's that negative relationship that they always see and people police very differently. And I'm not pointing to any department in particular, but I'm sure you realize they police Chelsea a whole lot differently than they police in Wellesley. I absolutely agree. I love what you just said because what you said reminds me, and I'm going to digress here quickly, when Nelson Mandela and the AMC, ANC took over in South Africa. A lot of people thought that was going to be tantamount to World War III with bloodshed, but they had reconciliation councils. They mm -hmm. went throughout South Africa and allowed people to say how they feel, to apologize, to shed tears, to yell, to scream, to, be, and to do something to at least recognize the past. And yes. if what I'm hearing coming out of you is correct, you're saying the fact that we just wanted to talk about reform and moving forward without acknowledging the de decades, the centuries of the past, that just seems like it's just not going to happen. You can't move forward till you at least recognize the wrongs have been done. With that said, Dr. Boyd, where do you see this sudden uh, inclusion of the word reform? that really grew a lot of wings last year in 2020. Is it something that will happen? What do you expect to happen? Or, and this is what I fear, it was a hot topic last year, but as time goes on, things tend to <laughs> dim a little bit. We were talking a reform around George Floyd last year. Pretty soon it will be coming up on a year. Where's reform? What's happened? What's your impressions on the whole idea of reform? Well, let's take one step back to talk about the acknowledgement of the past. Yes. The biggest um, policing um, agency that we have or organization is the International Association of Chiefs of Police. Mm. And five years ago, the chief from Wellesley, Massachusetts, Terry Cunningham, was the president of IACP. During his presidential address, he spoke for all policing in the US and he apologized to the black community for the negative relationship that they've had. And can I tell you, sir, mm -hmm. uh, officers lost their mind. I they walked it. out, a lot of people yes, were angry. And he know. says, I'm not talking about anything that anyone's doing today. Sure, I'm sure. just acknowledging the negative history. And there was a talk that, um, James Comey, when he was director of the FBI, he gave a talk at Georgetown in 2015 that I happened to sit in. And he said, we have to acknowledge some hard truths in policing, one of which is that the history of policing is an ugly history. You know, we can't whitewash that. We have to acknowledge that it is an ugly history. Really bad stuff happened. Once we acknowledge that, we can move on. Because it's funny that we're supposed to just move on for, from over 200 years of slavery, but 9-11, the one day event, never forget. How does that even make sense? But let, let's put a pin in that. So talking about reform, can reform happen? Absolutely. Reform is actually starting to happen, but we can't expect the police 
to warm them. If I may borrow a quote from Johnny Cochran in the final summation of the OJ trial, he asked rhetorically, I might add, who polices the police? Yes. We can't allow the police any longer to police themselves. Whenever there's a shooting or something that happens, it goes to internal affairs. And I'm not saying that they're dirty, but the optics of it doesn't look good. I agree. I'm a big fan of civilian oversight, mm -hmm. But we also need legislative reform. Here in Connecticut, I've worked with the Black and Puerto Rican Caucus to um, draft legislation that's going to be police reform. And one of the things is the duty to intervene. And it's really funny if the police sees one person beating the snot out of somebody else and they're both civilians, the police will jump in and they'll affect an arrest. When they see an officer beating the snot out of somebody being arrested, somebody in handcuffs, somebody already in custody, they turn a blind eye. How is that even possible? And whenever I talk, I always say the vast majority of police officers are God-fearing, law-abiding yeah, citizens. Absolutely. But I said that uh, when I was doing a, a talk for uh, Mayor de Blasio's people, and one of the uh, senior citizens asked, if you keep saying most police officers are good, and I said, and they are, she says, where are all these good police officers when bad cops are doing bad stuff? And if they're not stopping them, are they really good officers? Wow. Wow. That is quite a statement and something definitely to think of. Lorenzo, before we uh, end this conversation, which has just been absolutely so enlightening, I want to hear about what you're doing. I know obviously you're at the University of New Haven. But beyond that, you mentioned that you do speak to police unions, police officers. Obviously, you've done a lot of TV and so forth. What's your goal? What do you want to have? What do you want to do? Well, for the last decade or so, I've been running a consulting company called Rens Consulting LLC. Email address is rensconsulting.net. And if you look at that, it's got some pretty heavy hitters, a lot of current and former police chiefs, attorneys and such. And what we do is we go in and we're a problem solving company. So a lot of times when bad stuff happens. So we were on the ground in Ferguson on day four. We were in Baltimore on day three. We were in Baton Rouge. We were in Dallas. So we go to a lot of places when there's a problem. In Fayetteville, North Carolina, they wanted a community policing program. So my team and I built a community wellness program and complaints against the police in one year um, started to fall. So what I do now is train police officers. And the big push now, post George Floyd, is we do a lot of cultural competence training. And the way training normally works, you talk about externally what other people are doing. In the cultural competence training that I'm doing, it's more internal. It's how do you feel about these things? And we try to deconstruct some of the biases that people have and get them to remove value because some neighborhoods that they talk of that are high, um, high calls for service, people automatically say that they're bad neighborhoods. When you add the value judgment that they're bad neighborhoods, the implication is that then there are bad people there. But if we say what they are, they're actually fragile communities. And oh. if you think about it as a fragile community, and how many of us have ever gone to a, a restaurant and you get that wobbly table every time you lean on it, it spills sure. your drink. Off to one side. So, <laughs> so what do you do? You get your, your people, you lift the table and you throw it out back and you wait for them to build you a new table. 
No, not at all. What you do is you fold up a menu Absolutely. or a <laughs> and you stick it under the wobbly leg. You add resource and secure or support that leg. So what if we took that same thought process in communities? Instead of throwing away the problem communities or these fragile communities, what happens if we give them le levels of support? What if we strengthen these communities? If we have that mentality, then we're problem solvers and the best police officers solve problems before they become crimes. I totally agree with that, Lorenzo. And that analogy is perfect. I hope everybody heard that. If you got a wobbly table, by putting something under that wobbly side, you're going to have what we all want. And what's that? A level playing field. How's yeah. that? How's that? Lorenzo Boyd, a pleasure and honor speaking to you again, coming out of the neighborhood that we grew up. And by the way, I should mention that neighborhood was Calendar Street, Oakhurst Street, Woodrow Ave, Dorchester. We all grew up there. And some of us are doing so well. It's so proud of everybody and happy to so many of us that's around. And Lorenzo, we're all so proud of you and all you've done. And if there is a voice that's needed for community policing relations, it's your voice, my young brother. Thank you. When people ask, what am I doing? The short answer is, I'm just trying to make a difference. There we go. Lorenzo Boyd, thank you once again for being on Everyday Ed. If people need to reach out to you or your agency, what's the best way to do that? You can uh, go to my website, rensconsulting.net, and then you can hit me up there. There you go. Everybody, once again, from his home in New Haven, Connecticut, Dr. Lorenzo M. Boyd. Lorenzo, good speaking to you, brother. I got a feeling we'll do it again. Thank you, Fast Eddie. Thanks Thank for having me. <laughs> Thank you, sir. We'll be right back with more of Everyday Ed in just a moment. We're joined now by my 14-year-old brilliant nephew, Matteo. Matteo thrilled us last week with his thoughts and wisdom on conceptualization and gave us some great examples on how we human beings don't conceptualize as strongly as we should. I love his whole deal on the difference between a million and a billion. But that was last week. He's back this week with another word and another example. We welcome my nephew, Matteo, to Everyday Ed. Welcome back, Matteo. Hi, Uncle. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure, my man. Matteo, last week you blew us away with conceptualization. Let's get right into it. What word do you have for us this week and an example? Okay, Uncle. Well, this week I'd like to talk about inconceivability. Okay, wait a minute. One more time, please. <laughs> inconceivability. Inconceivability. All right. I hear a lot of words in there. The big word I hear is inconceivable, but please continue. Yes, so inconceivability is the state of something being inconceivable or something being unbelievable, you know? Uh, so, for an example, like like talked about last week, winning the lottery. Yeah. You know, uh, like one in 300 million, that's very inconceivable, very Absolutely. unbelievable that it could happen, right? Absolutely. That would be, winning the lottery to most of us is inconceivable. Now, you mentioned to me earlier this week that you had a story around that word. Mm -hmm. I am, and I know everybody listening is dying to hear this story. So tell us a little bit about, or tell us this story. Okay, so like I said, you know, winning the lottery yes. or surviving two nuclear bombs in three days. Oh, say it again? Surviving two nuclear bombs in three days. Surviving two nuclear bombs in three days. Well, I know enough about history to know there's only been two examples of 
of a nuclear bomb being dropped on anyone, anywhere, any people. So you've got to be talking about Japan and Nagasaki? Yeah, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, yes. All right, please continue. (laughs) So there's this guy named Sutomo Yamaguchi. Uh, He was born in 1916, and in 1945, he was in Hiroshima uh, on a job site as an engineer when the first bomb hit. What? A flash of light. Yes. Everything went dark. His ears were ringing. He got flown out of a ditch feet, like dozens of feet high, but he survived. His Mm. skin was melting off, Mm. and he had no idea what happened. So he and a few of his other work buddies that had also survived because he was two two miles away from ground zero <sighs> just decided to go back to work. And he got a train and he went to Nagasaki. Oh my God. Wait a minute. Okay. <laughs> and I don't mean to laugh because this is not funny, but you're telling me this guy was in Hiroshima August working 6th. on August 6th when the first bomb went off. Yes. And he went home for a couple of days, yeah. but he went back to work on August 9th, oh. 1945. And he went to work not in Hiroshima because in it Naga- was flattened, but he went to work in Nagasaki. Naga- and don't tell me. And he was telling his boss about what happened, and his boss didn't believe that one bomb could flatten an entire city when the second bomb hit. Oh. A flash of light again. He had thought that the mushroom cloud from the first one had fallen into Nagasaki. Isn't that amazing? I've never heard that Again, before. Two miles away from ground zero. What I'm inconceivable is right. I just can't get over what you just said. So when he saw the mushroom cloud, not understanding fully what happened the first time, he thought the cloud had followed him mm-hmm. to Nagasaki. Yes, he did. He had just gone through a second bombing. Mm-hmm. And you know what's even more inconceivable and even more lucky is that while he was at work, his family, his wife and his daughter, had gone out to buy bandages for him, for his skin. Because of the first bombing? Because of the first bombing. And when they got home, part of their house was destroyed. That, okay. And I just, I, I, let me get this straight. Because he had been injured in the first bombing, his wife and daughter were out looking for bandages when the second bomb hit Nagasaki that destroyed their home, had they been home... They would have been dead. But instead, they were out looking for bandages. That is correct. Mateo, this is unbelievable. Uh, tell me more about this gentleman. So, this gentleman, uh, he in 1957, a couple years after the bomb hit, the, the two bombs hit, sorry, he had gotten recognized by the country of Japan for being a survivor, but only for one. Only for one. Only for Nagasaki. Only for Nagasaki, I see. And he had gone deaf in his left ear. Hmm. And for a long time, he didn't speak. Decades, he didn't speak. But he went around, after he started speaking, as an advocate for nuclear bomb violence and the creation of nuclear bombs. Wow. So he spent the while. So after that, he went around telling folks why nuclear bombs were just horrible and Mm -hmm. my god if anyone on this planet could talk about how horrible they are here's someone who lived through two of them Mm -hmm. and so he and his wife went all around the world you know Mm. to un meetings he had movies made about him really he he had spoken out about the u.s and other countries making nuclear bombs and still still thinking about maybe using them if if the time came if they needed to right 
and he just talked about the inhumanity of it. Absolutely. And you know what brings this story so close to home and what I find so fascinating about the story is that those bombs hit in 1945. Yes. He was born in 1916. Yes. He died in 2010. What? He just died 11 years ago? Just 11 years ago. Oh 11 years ago, I think January 4th. Wow, you know, that's, a, you know, why are you telling me that this man just died 11 years ago? That's one of those cases where you think something is so long ago, but his life just ended just 11 years ago. There was a man walking around who had been through two of the worst days in the history of mankind. 250,000 dead. And he was a survivor. Mateo, you have done it again. A very, very fascinating story around the word inconceivability. And that's exactly what that story is. You know, this is one of those stories that I hope people take with them and they do think about how cruel man can be to man. And of course, there was a lot that went into why those bombs were dropped and so forth. But in the end, it still, as you said, took hundreds of thousands of lives in the blink of an eye. In the flash. In two blinks. In two blinks of an eye. Exactly. Well said. Mateo, you've done it again. You have blown our mind and you've given us all something to think about. Mm-hmm. Anything else you want to say? Uh, I'd just like to thank you again you know, for having me so I could tell this man's story. So I could share the inconceivability of this entire event. These two events. Once again, you all, you've just been listening to... My brilliant 14-year-old nephew, Mateo, in one of his observations. Mateo, thank you for telling us that story. Thank you. We'll be right back with Borby Dayed right after this. Welcome back to Everyday Ed. Our next guest comes to us live from his studio, Coastal Gung Fu and Boxing Club in Marblehead, Massachusetts. Joining us is Peter Easterlin. Peter has studied over 50 years in martial arts. He's 35 years as a teacher and also a boxing coach. Peter also has spent 20 years studying alongside a disciple of the legendary Bruce Lee. Once again, Peter joins us from his studio in Marblehead, Massachusetts. Peter, welcome to Everyday Ed. Hi, Ed. Thank you. Very well, Peter. And full disclosure, I always like to say this to uh, our listeners. <laughs> Peter and I aren't just casual friends. We were actually in high school together. So this We've is known going, each other for going back some 40 years. So let's just say that it was a decade even before the 80s when I first met Peter. And yep. Peter, again, thanks so much for being <laughs> on the show. My pleasure. Peter, 50 years in martial arts. You've seen and done so much. Let's start at the very beginnings. You're in Marblehead, Massachusetts. What is it that spurns you, that moves you to get into martial arts? Okay, so I was about seven years old and um, I um, had seen like, I think, um, I wanna say it was the Green Hornet. <laughs> and it was my first time seeing Bruce Lee Cato. Sure. And I thought it was just kind of cool. I didn't really know what it was. And my father had a friend that taught judo and a traditional um, shurinru karate and aikido here in town. And um, 
So he normally didn't take kids until they were nine years old for judo, but he decided to take me when I was seven because um, I wouldn't stop bugging him. And um, for like the next 10 years or so, I was there studying judo and um, shorinru and uh, eventually got my black belts in both. And, um, and uh, then in the late seventies, he um, retired after breaking his collarbone skiing. And I took over teaching for a while. And at the same time I was I'd gotten into boxing and was, was uh, training for some amateur fights. You know, it's funny now you say you were about seven years old when you watched the Green Hornet. Obviously yeah. it's the Green Hornet over here in the United States, as we know in Asia and the rest around the world, some people called it the Cato show because as cool, show, yeah. as, as cool as the Green Hornet was, we all were drawn to his sidekick, Cato. Tell me a little bit about what was it that made Bruce Lee, AKA Cato, so cool to you back when you were just a little boy watching the Green Hornet? Well, I, I think, you know, up to that point, the only thing I had really seen for like was movie fights and um, and I'd seen some boxing matches. I, I was I, like my father, like got me watching boxing at a very early age. He was mm -hmm. a, he was a boxing fan. And um, so I had seen like these, you know, a couple of like karate or judo people that looked cool. But this guy just was like, he was really fast. He was really muscular for a little guy. And I mean, I was a little kid, so I thought he was just this superhuman. Sure, sure. And, but I wasn't, funny thing is, I wasn't a big Bruce Lee fan and I'm still kind of more of a casual Bruce Lee fan than I am. I, I'm a huge fan of his process. And, and that's why I got into doing Jeet Kune Do eventually anyway, but, but like his movies, I, I, there are, martial arts movies that I like better than some of his with the exception of the dragon. I still think that's, that's the, that's the one. <laughs> but there, there's a difference between movie Jeet Kune Do and real Jeet Kune Do too, which we'll get into at some point. Here. That's a, that's a very good point. And as a matter of fact, it's a very good segue because as you and I have discussed, it's not just that there was Bruce Lee, the movie star, Bruce Lee, the amazing athlete, the incredible physical fitness he was in, but Bruce Lee also did, as you mentioned, have and develop and write and create his own style of fighting, the way yeah. of the intercepting fist, which was Jeet Kune Do. And I, if I'm, if right. I'm understanding you correctly, you've gotten more out of that Jeet Kune Do than maybe you have, say, out of what we all think in terms of Bruce Lee. Is that correct? Yeah. So, I mean, just quick background. I have black belts in small circle jujitsu, Kodokan Judo, Kempo, mm. and, and Nitenichiru and Shonru. And I left the belt thing behind a long time ago when I started doing like kind of my own thing. And then eventually, like I said, I got into Jeet Kune Do. I met Steve Golden, um, who had been a student of his in the LA Chinatown school. So during Bruce Lee's like life, he had, he had three schools. He had a school in Seattle, which eventually Taki Kimura ended up teaching out of. And what he taught there was a thing called the Tao of Chinese Kung Fu. And it was kind of really like really kind of rudimentary modified Wing Chun. And then eventually ended up in Oakland with a guy named James Jim Lee, who a lot of people consider as a co-contributor collaborator to Jeet Kune Do. I won't really? call him the co-creator because Bruce Little created it with anybody he was with. But that was his second school. And in Oakland, he had a, that's where the fight with Wong Jok Man took place. And sure. 
he, he was using Wing Chun to fight this guy from another school. And he felt it took him too long and he was too winded. And he started watching Western boxers and their footwork and stuff. And like he would watch Muhammad Ali in a mirror. This is yeah. what I've been told mm-hmm. by people, reliable sources. And he, he, he turned it so he would, um, you know, be power side forward, which is one of the Jeet Kune Do tenets is you hit with your, you strike with your power side up front because you're going to hit with that the most. And then from there, he ended up in LA and he was acting and stuff, but he, he opened a school in the LA Chinatown area and Dan Inosanto was his assistant. And then he had a bunch of students there and I ended up meeting one of them later on. And for me, what I found out, what really attracted me wasn't so much what Bruce did again during his lifetime, but was the process he went through to get better. Yes. And, yes. and I think Steve Golden also was going through that process and that's why, or he'd gone through it and that's why I was drawn to him. And eventually, and, and also one of his students, James Chandler, who really has helped me a lot over the years. Um, and I found them initially through a guy named Sean Madigan, who was in New York, who I trained with a little bit and got a lot out of, though, um, and prepared me really well for going to Steve and, and, and then doing my own thing. You know, it's really funny that, uh, I'm sorry, I'm just going to ask you, you said it's not just that you studied the style and all, but the way to get better and better. I'm curious about as we all get older, do yeah. you get more, is the, the certain things start happening? And I don't mean physically, obviously things happen to us all physically as we get up there. Yeah. But what about mentally? How's your approach, not just to Jeet Kune Do, but to martial arts, boxing in general? How do you align what's happening to you physically to where you are mentally? Well, one of the things that I've really tried to do over the years is get more economical about things and be really relaxed when I'm training. The key mm. to throwing like a fast, hard punch or kick or whatever is being really relaxed. The less tense you get, the better it's going to be. Ah, um, so as I've gotten older, I've been able to like increase my speed and power by getting rid of certain things and adding certain things. So one of the things that we started realizing as we came up with a formula to get faster, you know, um, more better tactile awareness, things like that, was to figure out where to add rotation to be able to create acceleration at different points along like the line of a punch. And we started thinking out of the box and started thinking like an engineer instead of like um, an artist and started looking at things scientifically. So, but at the same time, we started really playing around with the idea of feeling energy and because we're made of electricity. So, you know, we figured let's get in touch with, you know, the internal stuff too. As your life has gone on, Peter, what ha- what has martial arts meant for you? 50 years is a long time to do anything. And obviously you must have it as part of your everyday existence. Yeah. What does it give you? It's been a constant for me since I was a kid. And I mean, I've had other jobs. I was a master barber for years. I was in the restaurant business. Okay. Um, and, and both as a you know, on the bar and as, as, and in the kitchen as a, as a chef. But I, one of the constants throughout those years was I was always teaching a little bit of martial arts or doing Uh some personal training and this and that. And eventually when it came down to like, what do you really want to do with your life? It was like, I want a gym. I want to teach this full time every day, but I need to find out a way to do it. And one of the things was Jeet Kune Do wasn't going to put people in the seats, but boxing was. Mm. So I went back to USA boxing and got certified 
well, recertified as a USA boxing coach. And then dug in and, and got into like, got my referees and timekeeper and judges certification too. And just started studying, you know, really the finer aspects of that. And as we got more people into boxing, they'd see us doing Wing Chun and Jeet Kune Do. They'd go, well, what's that? <laughs> and we'd be able to get them involved in it. And I mean, we do have a decent presence online. We have our Facebook page has close to a thousand followers, I think. Nice. I mean, I don't even know. I don't really look all that much. Um, we do live streams on a daily basis. We want everybody involved that we can get involved. We've been able to maintain a fairly decent amount of membership online because we figured out a way to use Zoom early on. You know, I'm sorry, I'm kind of all over the place with this. I'm, no, it's okay. I was gonna ask. I, I've, I've been actually working since five o'clock this morning. So I'm just like a typical martial artist. I know you you probably done yeah. more on the first couple artists, couple of hours than most of us have done in a day. <laughs> Peter, I gotta ask you, what about the similarities or what are the similarities between, say, boxing and martial artism, other than the obvious combat, what else? Well, boxing is a martial art. I mean, boxing is one of the one of the most readily like available live martial arts. When you teach somebody to box, you're not only teaching them, you're teaching them offense and defense, evasive skills, footwork, and all of these things are in Jeet Kune Do. There's boxing in Jeet Kune Do. There's Wing Chun in Jeet Kune Do. And when you can bridge the two together and make them work together, you get something special. I mean, there's elements of fencing in Jeet Kune Do. Bruce looked at these things and he, he wanted to make everything work cohesively. But the other thing was Jeet Kune Do was about daily decrease. There's a saying, Jeet Kune Do is a boat that carries you across the river. Once you cross the river, you ah. leave the boat behind. You don't carry it with you. I didn't make that up either. That's somebody, quoting somebody, I'm not even sure who it might be Bruce. Today we've seen an increase in a new style of fighting, if you will, and that is UFC, of course, many people believe that Bruce Lee and Enter the Dragon yeah. was really the first time you saw UFC because of the little gloves. But what about UFC and that type of boxing or martial arts? Where is that martial arts? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people will call Bruce Lee the father of mixed martial arts. And I, I don't really agree because he wasn't putting martial arts together to make a new martial art. He was, he was taking stuff, what worked and using it and throwing away what wasn't working. So again, it was about like daily decrease at the end when he was at the very end, he wasn't doing stuff that he did at the beginning because he didn't have to anymore. I mean, it was ingrained in him. There was Wing Chun in there, but you didn't see it. And you might not even recognize it when he was doing other stuff. If you look at like private videos of him, like teaching, like I've seen this video of him teaching like James Coburn and some other guys. Yes. And it's, it's these backyard classes that where he was doing the real thing. And you know, when you see like Enter the Dragon, there's like the scene where they're in reference point where he's fighting Bob Wall. Yes. And it's 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 choreographed, yes. But it's it's the way that you train somebody in Wing Chun how to trap at the beginning. But it's not how you teach them how to trap when you get better at it, because trapping should be a byproduct of hitting. Yes. Not the opposite. The idea of trapping is something gets blocked and you get it out of the way and then you hit again. And we certainly see that in that classic fight he has with Bob Wall and Enter the Dragon. Right. And what you see in that is, is it progresses. It starts off as trapping progressions and then it goes into yep. when they start fighting, when he starts dancing around and fighting, he starts going into a thing called indirect attack, where wow. indirect attack is basically trapping without touching. It's the idea of getting your opponent to go somewhere they don't want to go because they think you're going to hit them somewhere, but you hit them somewhere else. And then, and then everything's about controlling timing, rhythm, and distance. So when you look at Bruce's movies, they're 
I mean, Enter the Dragon is definitely the epitome of like seeing him move the way he could move, but it's still choreographed fights. And when you look at like sure. his like, you go back to some of the stuff from like, um, there's a film from Long Beach from like the early 60s where he's starring, I think, with Dan, either Dan Innocento or Taki. Yeah. And he's timing the guy and he's just beating him to the punch constantly. That's what it's about. Peter, you're in Marblehead, Massachusetts. I am. <laughs> and as far as I can see, you've been in Marblehead, Massachusetts for a long time. And might I add, you're probably the <laughs> you're probably the baddest man in Marblehead, Massachusetts as well. <laughs> I spent a little bit of time in Texas in the 80s in Oklahoma City. And then I spent a little t- time out in California in the late 80s. So you were the, you're the United States boxing coach. 20 years you studied alongside a disciple of um, yeah, I'm, I'm a USA boxing coach. I don't yep. really work with in like the elite fighters, but I kind of farm to another gym. Like I get kids and when they get to a certain point, I send them to a friend of mine that was a national golden gloves champion and, and have him take them to the next level. And then if he wants me to work their corner, I'll go with them. Excellent. Peter, I've watched your, on Facebook, your pod, your um, website on Facebook. Tell us a little bit about that. So our Facebook page is Coastal, it's Coastal Bend Foam Boxing, or it's, I believe it's like Facebook slash Coastal Get Fit, okay. something like that. But it's, if you look up Coastal Gun Foam Boxing on Facebook, you'll find our page. I've watched you for a few, few years now on there. You're in amazing shape. Yeah. It's not just getting a chance to see you practice what you know so well, <laughs> but also if people watch you, they can... You sort of do what, you know, try to do what you're doing or at least yep. keep up with you. They may yeah. not know what they're doing, but it's a good workout. Talk a little bit in these last few moments we have about, again, we are, you know, I mean, I'm, as I mentioned, I'm 60 years old, but I get a lot of watching you do it. And every now and then I'll get up myself and maybe join in a little bit. <laughs> so in, in my 40s, I was like in bodybuilder shape still. And I was cycling a lot and I was, I was running and, and I, I typically weighed in about 150 to 165. You know, if I was not training for something, I might go up to 170. But, um, and I maintained that pretty well through about five, six years ago. And then I had to have a couple of minor surgeries and I gained some weight. So I was floating up around 200 pounds, but I was still moving really good. And I was still doing, you know, everything I was doing and I wasn't having any problem. And then finally this year um, with COVID, I, I did what a lot of people did and, and kind of had the COVID diet going for a while. Yeah. <laughs> and then I hit it a few weeks, about a month ago, I decided, you know what, it's time to get back into shape. So I've already dropped about 15 pounds. I'm back under 185 again. Nice. And um, we're documenting it on our live streams. Um, I cleaned up my diet, um, cut out the alcohol, um, mm-hmm. rededicated myself to getting better again at, at Jeet Kune Do and boxing and better at coaching mm-hmm. and uh, just being a better person in general. Well, you know, that that's really encouraging. And I, I love yeah. the idea that with today's technology, people can actually watch somebody yeah. pretty much lose weight because yeah. I think that's always a good encouragement. It's one thing to see a before and after picture, but it's another thing to actually walk the steps with someone. And that makes a huge difference. Peter, yeah. I got to tell you, I've, I've just been, it's a pleasure speaking with you on this episode of Everyday Ed. Well, thank Again, you. Again, your website has been very uh, inspiring to me and I've watched it. And although I'm not there with you, I'm there with you in spirit and I haven't got a lot from it. And I promise to get you out 
get out to Marblehead and spend some time with you at your studio. I, I would love it if you would make it out here. We, we would, um, you know, maybe when the weather gets nice, we'll do a little barbecue. I'd, I'd love to do that. Eddie, it's, I, I really appreciate the support you've given us too. And, and um, I'm, I mean, I'm glad that I've been able to bring some Jeet Kune Do to you from my personal experience with it. Cause I knew you were a big fan of Bruce Lee and, and um, I, again, you know, it's, it's a pleasure whenever I get a chance to, whenever I see your, your name pop up, I'm always like, there's my friend, Dad. Well, Peter, that is wonderful to say. I'm glad you could say that. And that's very nice of you. And the feeling goes the same way too, back to you. Peter, once again, let everybody know how they could find you on Facebook. So on Facebook, it's, it's um, if you look on Facebook and you search Coastal Gung Fu Unboxing on, and you want to do a, a web search, it's www.facebook.com slash Coastal Get Fit. That's C-O-A-S-T-A-L-G-E-T-F-I-T. We did have a website up. We're working on redoing it, um, which was Coastal um, JKDMHD.com. Um, but it's down right now. I've got to talk to my IT guy and we, we think we're going to start a new one that we are going to be able to do, um, do like a JKD podcast from. Nice. So, and of course, as soon as I have anything going like that, you'll be one of the first people invited. We're going to keep doing stuff on, on Facebook and we have an Instagram page also that's Coastal JKD. I haven't been doing as much on that lately, but it's out there and we do have a lot of stuff on it. Um, we also, we also like, have custom-made boxing gloves, hand wraps, shoes. Wow. Um, we get stuff made for boxers and we try to make the price really good for everyone too. So just not to give myself a little plug, but there that's you go. right. They'll give yourself a plug. Once again, everybody, you, we've been talking with Peter Rieselin from his studio in Marblehead, Massachusetts, Coastal Gung Fu and Boxing Club. Peter, once again, thank you so much for being on this episode of Everyday Ed. We'll be right back with more of Everyday Ed in just a moment. Welcome back to Everyday Ed. As I wrap up this, the second episode of Everyday Ed, I couldn't help but to think of the irony of the subject that I want to close with this week. And when I look around, I see my 24-year-old nephew, Gregory, who once again handles the technical, audio, and engineering aspects of Everyday Ed. And Mateo, my other nephew, who of course has a 10-minute piece on every episode of Everyday Ed, sharing his observations and opinions. I figured a lot of my listening audience might be around my age and might be interested in hearing what's on the mind of somebody a couple generations behind us. But the irony is this. I got to thinking about politicians and their constituencies. Look, I'm in no way suggesting that politicians in their 70s and 80s don't deserve the seats they hold in local politics or national politics as congressmen, congresswomen, or senators in Washington, or even the president of the United States. But I know at some point I can't be the only one who wonders, how much can somebody in their 80s really relate to their constituency when the average age of their constituency is 30-something. At some point, I have to believe that when we see not just politicians, but leaders in their 70s and 80s, we see history because they've lived history. We don't necessarily equate them and their power with, in some cases, the present, let alone the future. Let me explain. Many times, when leaders get in their 70s and 80s, they talk about what they've been through 
In fact, sometimes when you look at them, you immediately think about how long this person's been around. They're walking history. Now, I understand that history is important and there is no way you can move forward without thinking about or remembering or understanding your history. But at some point, there has to be a case where when you see someone, when you listen to someone speak, the emphasis is not on what we've been through, but where we're going. I'm going to use Black Lives Matter as an example. Now, no matter what lines you fall along about how you feel about Black Lives Matter, we all have to admit this. There was a movement, a very powerful, powerful movement that was led by the faces of young men and women. In fact, I was as impressed of the young faces that were leading Black Lives Matter as much as I were their cause because it represented people who were living today because they have a future in front of them that they would like to impact or change. What we need now is a lot more young politicians and people in power who have decades in front of them, not decades behind them. Look, I'm not going to mention any names, but on both sides of the aisles in Washington, you have congressmen and women who have spent 5, 10, 15-year terms, 15 years terms now, not years, but terms. That equates to 20, 30, in some cases, almost 40 years in office. Look, the bottom line for me is this. I don't want to be accused of ageism, and I really hope I don't come across that way because that's not what I want to do. I just have to believe the world would be in a different, hopefully even a better position, if more young people who have their futures ahead of them were in power. So I hope we all think about that the next time you go to the polls. And no, I'm not saying vote for somebody just because they're young, but at least take a few moments to do this. Think about your incumbent and how long they've been in power and think whether or not maybe it's time for someone who's younger, who might just be a little bit more in tune with the world today. Think about them and the difference they could make. At least consider it. Think about the future, not the history. I, for example, this month, during Black History Month, I always say Black Future Month. Thank you so much for listening to the second episode of Everyday Ed. My name again is Edwin Sumter. Everyday Ed is produced by REJ Productions. That's myself and J. Scott Henderson. All engineering, audio, and technical work is done by my nephew Gregory Green at Scalestone Studio. Mateo co-writer on the piece 10 Minutes with my brilliant nephew, Mateo. Everyday Ed is written by me, Edwin Sumter. And once again, I want to thank my guests. All the way from Marblehead, Massachusetts, good friend Peter Easterlin. Don't forget to look up Peter online. He's a martial arts expert, and he also has a lot to say about the mental aspect of martial arts. Peter, we thank you. And once again, Dr. Lorenzo Boyd, calling in from his office in New Haven, Connecticut, for his thoughts and wisdom on police-community relations. Dr. Boyd, we thank you. Original music for Everyday Ed is provided by the band Red House. The song is Misty. Once again, I want to thank you all for tuning in to our second episode. We've made it through two. Can't wait to give you another one in a couple weeks. Thanks so much for listening. And as I always say, stay safe and be kind.